The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. Scripture says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, I am a pastor of a loud Baptist church. Okay, So you, you kind of have to say something for me to know that you're in the room. I am very, very grateful for the opportunity to be back with you again and to share uh, with my friend Jonathan uh, this opportunity with you. As I shared with him this morning, uh, it's a very serious thing to me when another pastor uh, turns over his flock uh, to you to hear what you have to say. So I'm always uh, in lots of trembling and lots of fear, as, as I share, uh, things that I fight through, uh, not because I'm, I'm not sure of what I'm going to say, but I, I want to make sure that what I'm saying is what God wants me to say. Uh, because you can hear from me from now until I am no more. But if I don't speak what God wants me to say through you, I have terribly and miserably failed you. And, and I don't like failure. So uh, if you allow me to pray, I'll pray, and then I'll, I'll get started, and then you can judge whether God is speaking or not. How about that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the privilege that you have given to me to speak into this environment, and I pray that you speak through me. It is not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. It is God who has made disabled ministers of the New Testament. That is what we believe. That is what we stand on. That is what we pray back to you as we stand in the presence of your people. Thank you now for what you will do in me and in them for your glory, honor, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. From the scripture that was read to you this morning, I'd like to talk to you a little bit um, on the subject of the desperate cries of the advent, the desperate cries of the advent. No one really knows how many children Herod the Great killed out of his anger with the wise men. There are some that say that it was as few as under 10, and then again, the Orthodox Church in America says that it could have been as many as 14,000. Nobody really knows. 
But there are some scholars, though, that believe that the event never occurred. And so you go where somewhere between zero to 14,000, which is a very, very broad range. But when you look at Herod the Great, when you understand who he was and, and the struggles that he had, you can kind of surmise that something happened. Herod was a man that suffered with his own identity. And it is this suffering with our own identity apart from Christ that causes him and us to be very, very dangerous people, particularly when it comes to the sharing of the gospel and the continuation of the gospel. Uh, the odd thing about Herod is that we have so much information about him. One statistic I saw said that we have more information about Herod from primary sources than from any other person that ever lived throughout history, which is an amazing thing to have that much information about him. And I want to share a little bit about him before I get more into what I want to share with you this morning. Herod the Great had a lot of great accomplishments. He rebuilt Jerusalem and he facelifted the entire city. He created uh, Caesarea in, in 12 years. He built a great port city. He uh, built a great palace for himself. He built a great stadium. He built a great fortress so that he could protect his empire. Politically, he was a great success. But when you look at his life, his personal life, Herod had some serious problems. Among them was that when he became older in his life, he was very, very paranoid. He became paranoid so much so that he began to kill people. History tells us that he married 10 times and that each of those women produced sons for him. But each of those sons, realizing that there were other sons that they were in competition with, started to try to kill each other. And then, to top it off, they got to where they started trying to kill him. One of his favorite wives, or his favorite wife, he had her killed. And not to be finished with that, he decided, not only am I going to kill her, I'm going to kill her mama too. So he killed her, and then he killed his mama, killed her mother. He invited one of the high priests to come and take a swim with him one day. So he brought the priest down from Jericho. They came. They swam. They had a rough game of polo. Herod uh, the Great was so angry because of the rough game of polo that he drowned the priest. He had several of his uncles killed. Uh, one person said of Herod that it was better to be Herod's sow than his son because his sow had a better chance of living a full life than his sons did. Josephus says that in the last part of Herod's life that he became very, very paranoid and worried that when he died, nobody would mourn his death. And he was right because they were all, they, they knew he was sick, and so they began to make celebrations or get celebrations together so that when he kicked the bucket, they could all rejoice. 
He knew that, and so right before he died, he asked his sister to get all the Jewish people together, all the Jewish leaders together into the stadium that he had built. And so when she brought them in, she asked him, why are you asking me to do this? And he says, I want you to kill them all. I want you to kill them all so that when I die, there'll be no rejoicing. Everybody will be crying. Herod had a real serious problem because he knew that because of him, people were going to rejoice when he died. And that's a sad, sad commentary. Now, you may ask, and I'm sure you are asking, what does this have to do with Advent? What does it have to do with race relations? What does it have to do with coming to church? What does it have to do with anything that we're dealing with today? And I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> there are four things that are about Herod, I think, that are important as we look at race relations, as we look at the advent, as we look at the move of God in society, as we look at the move of God in history. The first point about Herod that caused him to be a terror during the advent season, which is just a terrible thing because the advent is a time when God was introducing Christ, and he was introducing a Christ, a Messiah to the whole world, and we, and we know that he was introducing him to the whole world because of the prophecy that came when it talked about in Isaiah that he is going to be to all people, that he's going to be a light to the Gentiles, that he is going to be for everybody upon the earth, and the salvation of God is going to go to the ends of the earth. And then second of all, we know that it was for everybody because of the people that he used. God did not use the Jews that were around at that time. He sent for, to a far country, the Magi, and he brought these basically idolaters into Jerusalem to announce to them that the Messiah would be born. And then when he brought the proclamation to the soldiers that was there, he said, I'm bringing you good news of great joy. It should be to all people. All people, for unto you this day is born the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And so the Advent season, the Christmas season, the coming of the Messiah was meant for everyone. But, but this one person, this, this, this Herod, began to turn things upside down. And a time that was meant for great rejoicing turned into a time of great mourning. And thus, we came to the scripture for today. Rachel, the mother of the Jewish people, weeping, weeping so profusely, weeping so bitterly that the Bible says she didn't want to be comforted. She, there was nothing you could do to comfort her because her children were being destroyed. And they were being destroyed by a man named Herod. There were four things about Herod, as I said, that made him so desperate. There are four things about him that I see as we look at uh, racism, as we look at sexism, as we look at religious pride, as we look at all the things that are anti-God, anti-Messiah, anti-Advent. The very first thing about Herod that made him such a vile person was that his power was illegitimate. Now, what do I mean by that? Herod, Herod was not the rightful king. Uh, he was not of the line of David. In fact, he was the descendant 
He was not even a descendant of Jacob. He was probably a descendant of Esau, which made him an Edomite. And the fact that he was an Edomite, the Jews hated him. And so he had a problem with his own race because he was not accepted for what he was. He was not accepted for who he came from. The people that he was trying to rule hated him. And because he was not comfortable with who he was, he took out his anger and his vitriol. He took out his self-hatred on everybody else. And the, the unfortunate thing is, is that if we don't become comfortable with who God has made us and what God has made us, our anger... Our quest for power will bring us to the point where we destroy the message of the Messiah. Down through history, and I, I like history because, as Pastor said, uh, our church has the bad distinction, I guess, of being the most bombed church in America that's still standing. Uh, it was bombed primarily because of a man named Fred Shuttlesworth who decided after reading the Bible that God loved everybody the same. And if God loved everybody the same and the law said everybody should be the same, then why can't we be treated the same? So he began to challenge segregation and began to challenge things. And because of, he, because of his challenge to things, then people began to think, okay, we need, we need to kill him. We need to take him out. And so instead of looking at what he was doing, instead of evaluating the message, and instead of looking at whether or not God has called us to do what we're doing, the people, like the people in Harris' time, looked at his ethnicity or looked at Shuttlesworth's ethnicity and said, we don't like what you're doing. We don't like what you're saying. The power that you are trying to get is an illegitimate power, just like the illegitimate power of Herod was despised by every, everybody else. Because Shuttlesworth and people like him were beginning to make, get momentum, they decided he had to die. I look at the gospel, I look at Advent, I look at the Messiah, I look at the message of Christ, and, and as I look at the message of Christ, it is a shame that so much of what we hear as the message of Christ ends up being the message of men. And we have the message of men because we want to control. And we want to control because the power that we have and that we have amassed is illegitimate power. It is not power that was given by the Holy Spirit. It's power that was given by men or taken by force. I shared with Pastor John Mark, Mark earlier that in my Christian walk, I came very close to turning away from Christianity. And the reason why was because where I grew up, people did not accept people for what they looked like. Uh, I mean, for, for how they acted, they accepted them more on the color of your skin. And there were people who would preach Christ today and tomorrow would pick my pocket. One of the earliest experiences I've ever had with being thrown out of any place or asked to leave a place or not to come back a place 
was actually in church. And the pastor asked me to come. He, he, he knew me. I, I led songs in an interracial, interdenominational youth group. He came to speak. Uh, for whatever reason, he liked me. And so he asked me if I would come just to visit his church, not to preach, not to speak, not to sing, not to teach, just come visit. And so on a Sunday night, I went. And a friend of mine went with me, and uh, so we sat in the back. We sang with the congregation. We didn't say anything out of the ordinary, didn't do anything out of the ordinary. We just visited. The next week, this friend of mine, who was an older guy, came to me and said, I need to talk to you about something. I said, okay, what? The people asked me to tell you never to come back to their service. Not because of whatever, but because sometimes as people we, we think that whatever we have amassed on our own, in the flesh, is more important than what God is doing. And it never is. And that was Herod. His illegitimate power, how he had amassed power because of all the other things, made him so paranoid that he had to maintain control by any means necessary. And if it meant killing babies, he would do that. If it meant killing leaders, he would do that. If it meant trying to do something else, he would do that. Because all legitimate power has to maintain control by illegitimate means. The best thing that I can share with you is that what God ordains, God sustains. What God ordained, God sustains. In the early 1900s, the church had come to a point where it was powerless. It was, it was a religious system. It was a system of do's and don'ts. There was a man, uh, happened to be a black man, by the name of William Seymour. He started, a God started a revival in him uh, in 1906. It actually started in Welch in 1904, but by the time 1906 came around, there was some resemblance of it here in America. William Seymour uh, started a revival called Azusa Street. Azusa Street was a revival that led to what many consider to be a great charismatic renewal. Miracles were done. Churches were being formed. People were being saved. Walls were being broken down. All kinds of things were going on. But there were two people in the church, both secretaries, that did not like the fact that William Seymour married a woman that they didn't think he should marry. So they stole his mailing list. Again, this is 1904. There was no internet. There was no Facebook. There was no nothing. They stole his subscription list. And without the subscription list, he could not send out the account of the miracles and everything that was going on to all of the subscribers. And so they thought the revival was over. And so they stopped coming and people stopped praying. They stopped doing things. And so the revival came to a halt. Because somebody in the church 
did not like some of the things that he was doing, so the revival stopped. Now, you may be thinking, okay, what, what kind of great theological debates did they get in that caused this kind of a halt? Well, let me share with you. One of the debates was whether or not men should wear neckties to be sanctified. Great theological debate, right? Whether you should wear, as a man, a necktie in order to be sanctified. And then they went a little bit deeper, and, and, and the idea was, okay, do we, they wanted to build a, 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 a storm shelter. And then the theological debate was, if we build a storm, storm shelter, is that a lack of faith? Like saying, if we build a house, is that a lack of faith? If I buy insurance, is that a lack of faith? If I wear clothes, does that mean that the glory of God does not cover my naked body? I said that facetiously, but that's how stupid it sounds to me. <laughs> and the inability to control, the ability, the inability to control the narrative, the inability to control the minds, the inability to control what's going on because my way is better, causes so many people to miss the gospel of Jesus Christ. This past election broke my heart. It broke my heart not because of who was elected or who was not elected, but it broke my heart because I heard prominent men and women of God get on TV and say, if you are this party, you're not a believer or if you're of this party, you're not a believer. I heard one go so far as to say, as say, only demon-possessed people vote this way. How sad. How sad. How sad that the message of Christ has been boiled down to a set of political beliefs that we follow. And many people in the world miss the gospel of Jesus Christ because they were blue or red or whatever other color you want to throw in there. Herod had a problem with his own ethnicity which bled over into his political beliefs, which led over into his actions, which caused so many children to die. And although 14,000 or whatever number it may be may not die because of our racial beliefs, if it spills over into our actions, it still kills people. Second of all, Herod caused Israel to cry, Rachel to cry, not only because his power was illegitimate, but his purposes were incongruent with the purposes of God. Now, what do I mean by that? The Advent season is for God to reveal his son. The Advent season, it was for all to accept his son. The coming of the Messiah 
is so that all of us would know that we are one in Christ just with different clothes on on the outside. But when our purpose is to make who we are Christ himself, then there's a problem. Our purposes then do not line up with what God is doing in the world. And I dare say that when we do things, and and, and all of us have to examine ourselves, when we do things, we must examine whether what we're doing is lining up with the message of Christ or is it lining up with what's comfortable for us. Whether it is of Christ. As I told you, when I grew up, or as I grew up, I had I'd begun to, to, to grow some real deep spiritual problems. I grew up in church. I was born in a Presbyterian environment. My mother carried me to church even before I was born. My father was an elder in the Presbyterian church. My mother was mother of the missionary society. She played piano for several different churches. So all day long, it seemed like every Sunday I was in church somewhere. But because of what was going on, I began to... to develop a bitterness. And that bitterness caused me not to be able to accept certain people. And and as I said, I I began to begin to look at other religions as a way out because what I saw of Christianity was not what I believed God wanted Christianity to be. But one day at 16 years old, God, God came into my heart through the person of Christ And and it gave me a born-again experience, and I was looking for somebody who was authentic. And the person that God sent me to was a man that I did not find out later had previously been a member of the Klan. I didn't find this out until he died. Because up until that time, he treated me with no difference. I kept looking for it. I knew it was coming. I knew that somewhere, that the, the background, that the, the environment of everyone else was going to sink into him, and it was going to come out. And I knew he was going to betray me, but he never did. We would go, this is back in the day when you could go door-to-door sharing. We would go door-to-door sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, sometimes just the two of us. And I remember one day we came to this man's house. We knocked on the door. He's, he's a short white man. I'm, I'm a tall black guy. And, and I imagine probably if you see a tall white, a tall black guy and a short black man standing at your door saying, we want to share Jesus with you, I can kind of understand now why you wouldn't open the door. But back then, this guy opened the door, looked at us and said, you need to go to your church and you need to go to he- yours. Close the door in our face. But he kept on sharing, and he kept on going, because his purpose in sharing the gospel was not to be accepted by men, but to be accepted by God. Herod made a terrible mistake. And all of us, when we come to the point of being accepted by men more than being accepted by God, there's a problem. Whenever the church becomes more concerned about what others say about us, 
rather than what God says about us. Now, again, I believe in having a good name in the community. We do great things in the community, lots of things in the community. But we have to be sure we're pleasing to God first. That's important. And our isms, be it sexism, politicalism, racism, denominationalism, whatever our ism is, if it is not in line with the purpose of Christ, it hinders the message of Jesus Christ. It hinders the advent. It hinders the revelation of what God wants to do in all of our lives. Seminary, we studied Martin Luther in the 95 Theses. In Martin Luther's day, there was a small group of priests that basically was a gap between heaven and earth. They knew everything. They had the Bibles. They knew how to read Hebrew and Greek. They were the elite and the masses. They kept pretty much in oppression. While reading the book of Romans, Martin Luther realized one very important fact, that no one can sell you a penance and get you closer to God. He realized that salvation is by faith through grace. He realized that, that eternal life only comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he began then to attack this system of religiosity. And for that, he was rewarded with excommunication. But he realized that the desperate cry of the advent, the desperate cry of God was that he, God, have a relationship with his people and have the ability to commune with all of them, not just with a few of them. And that's what Advent is about. That's why God wants to break down the racial barriers. That's why, be proud of who you are and what you are, but, but use who you are for the furtherance of the gospel. Use what you are for the furtherance of the gospel. Use your education for the furtherance of the gospel. I have a friend of mine who is a plastic surgeon in another state. He's a white gentleman. And right after George Floyd was killed, he called me crying. And he said, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry for what black people have to go through. I'm so sorry for this. And then he ended up saying something that I had to challenge him on. He said, I am sorry for being white. His name is not Phil, but I'll call him Phil. I said, Phil, what sense does that make? You cannot and did not determine who you were any more than I determined who I am. The challenge for all of us, and he, again, he's in a privileged situation. The challenge for all of us is to use whatever God has given to us for the furtherance of the gospel. If I'm a black man, if I can go in circles and I can say, what's up, my man, and share the gospel, that's fine. If you can go in an environment and say, how are you today, and share the gospel, that's fine. Whatever it is, wherever you are, 
The issue is not so much what we are. The issue is whether or not our purposes are in line with the message of the Messiah. And so we have to do that. And Advent is a cry for all of us to understand, no matter who you are, wise men, scribes and Pharisees, shepherds in the field, a little woman named Mary, if you're Joseph, if you're Simeon, if you're Anna. And I love the fact that God just picked people from everywhere. And he shared with them the same message. And he gave them all the same purpose. Go and share it with somebody. And I love the fact that God has many of us in different stages, different areas of life, but he gives us the same purpose. Go share it. Go tell everybody. Go use your circle. Go use your influence. Share with everybody you can. Hear it. Cause tears at Advent because he did not realize that his purposes, or he did realize because his purposes were incongruent with God's purposes. Third thing I want to share as I move very hurriedly on Herod not only had power that was illegitimate, he had purposes that were incongruent. He had a praise that was impersonal. He asked the wise men, go find the Messiah, bring me word, and then I'll worship. Now, we all know Herod sought to kill the Messiah. He was not intended on worshiping him, but he wanted them to find him under the guise of worship, an impersonal worship, an impersonal praise. One of the things I believe that hinders the gospel of Jesus Christ is impersonal worship. It's impersonal praise. And impersonal praise is what you offer to someone that you are not committed to. And impersonal praise is what you offer to somebody that you don't know. Impersonal praise to me is like a person that only has one little trick and they use that trick everywhere they go because they don't know anything else. It's like a guy trying to meet girls and he only has one pickup line. He tells everybody the same thing. Sometimes I think we try to impress God with an impersonal praise. It's a song that they've been singing for 50 years, and so God's supposed to get happy at this. I don't know him. He doesn't know me. I don't care about him. But if I sing this, it's like rubbing the bottle, rubbing the genie, and the genie comes out and gives me what I want. Impersonal praise hinders the gospel so much that it is absolutely a shame. And the world looks, and the world waits for genuineness, and the world looks, and the world uh, has to find somebody that is willing to be tried for the gospel. The world looks, and they look for people that are willing to step outside of their comfort zone. Had it not been for the man that became uh, my mentor, though I know it cost him, I know he was personally asked out of churches. 
I know that. I know that there were people who disassociated themselves with him because he associated himself with me. But because he was willing to pay a personal price, I knew he was authentic. Sometimes in life, ladies and gentlemen, God wants to put us on trial in public. Because somebody needs to see that what you say you believe is more than just a Sunday morning experience. I share one testimony. Just, just as a glory to God, I was a basketball player when I was younger. And when I played in high school particularly, my last year, I always prayed about whatever I did. As I prayed about playing basketball, this scripture kept coming up every time I'd open my Bible, it seemed like. Colossians 3.1. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above. Well, Christ is seated on the right hand of God. No, that can't mean don't play basketball. Can't be. I had one most valuable player the year before. Looking forward to my senior year. Uh, wanted to go to college playing basketball. This cannot be what you're saying. Close my Bible. Open it up again. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above and not things that are beneath. Set your affections on things above. And so I finally got the message. God is asking me to put my basketball on the altar. And I did. My dad was mad at me. My principal came to me and talked to me. My coach was furious. The team thought I had fainted out on them. But for about a month into the preseason, I just knew that's what God wanted me to do. And then a little bit later on, as I kept praying through it, I believe God gave me a release to go back. So I went back. And of course, I had to pay a tremendous price for going back. Fast forward, years later, one of the guys who was the other forward, I was one forward, he was the other one, ended up in jail. A friend of mine was there to share the gospel, and he said, the thing that made Christ real to me was the day that Thomas Wilder quit basketball because I knew how much he loved it. I knew how important it was to him. But I didn't know that what God was doing. All I knew was God was asking me to take my Isaac and put it on the altar. And there are times in life that God is going to ask you to do something personal in public for the sake of the gospel. That's what shares the gospel. The young man that I'm referring to is now preaching the gospel, and he credits his conversion with the fact that he finally saw someone that he knew that put something personal on the altar. Many of us want to worship God publicly. Many of us want to do public things. Many of us want to do things that don't cost us nothing. 
But there are times when the message is to be shared, it has to be shared by what you give up personally. You see, if Herod really wanted to find Jesus, he could have found him by personally going out, personally sending people to find him. But he wanted a praise that was impersonal. He wanted something that cost him nothing. And sharing the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, at some point, is going to cost you. Realizing what the advent is at some point has to get personal. It has to go beyond gathering on Sunday morning. It has to go beyond doing something in your weekly Bible study with everybody else. It has to come down to where it's personal with you. Here it caused so much trouble because his praise was impersonal. It's impersonal. But God calls for personal commitment. My final point, the one you've been looking for. Herod caused so much trouble and so much weeping because his passing was imminent. He knew he was about to die. He didn't want people to dance on his grave, and so he's desperate. Many things that we do in life comes out of desperation. I don't know your political affiliation. I'm not trying to be political at all. I'm just using this as an illustration for the sake of the gospel. I remember back earlier when there was this great march in, uh, I forgot where it is now, my mind went blank. Maybe I'm not supposed to share it. But, but, the, but the idea was that the Klansmen walked around and they said, you will not replace us. And the idea was, and that's a great replacement theory because brown-skinned people are growing in numbers uh, larger than normal, normal, quote-unquote, that there are people that feel that uh, Caucasian people will be replaced by brown-skinned people. But the truth of the matter is it comes from a book called Workforce uh, uh, 2050 uh, that, that the majority of people in America will still be Caucasian or European, uh, 60%, but the other minority numbers will grow. But because there was this fear that people are going to replace them, they decided that they would wreak havoc. And when people get to that point of desperation, when we think politically we're going to be replaced, when we think racially we're going to be replaced, when we think sexually we're going to be replaced, when we think economically we're going to be replaced, then the gospel suffers so much. And the, and the truth of the matter is that all of us at some point are going to be replaced. Every one of us is passing. Our passing is imminent. Every one of us is leaving. Even now, as I, I pastor my church for 34 years, and, and, and every now and then, even some of the sons in the ministry that I've raised, when, when they get up and they start growing, I have to fight inside of me. They're beginning to love him more than they love me. And then I have to back up and understand 
you are passing. You're here for a moment. And if you let your ego get in the way of what God is doing through a young brother or through a young sister simply because you think you are going to be replaced, you are missing the gospel. The gospel is not for me. The gospel is not only for me, rather. I, I am a leg in a marathon. I am one link in a chain. My duty is to grab the baton, run so far, pass it on to another one, and then get out of the way. But when I lose that perspective, the message of Christ suffers because I think it's about me. When we lose the perspective that, yeah, there's a great revival going on in Africa right now, so much so that the African people are beginning to send missionaries to America because they think, truthfully, truthfully, they think America has lost it. They look at what we're doing politically. They look at what we're doing economically. And, of course, all the bad news travels first. They look at what we're doing to each other racially, and they think we need to pray for America because America is in trouble. This imminent passing, this idea that we are going to be replaced stops a lot of us from sharing the gospel because we have to be the one with the revelation. We have to be the one with the understanding. We have to be the one that everybody looks to. But like Herod, all of us are going to die. But Herod was so desperate to try to maintain control that he began to kill as many people as he could kill so that when he died, that somebody would cry. And as it relates to Advent, the last desperate cry of the Advent is for this idea of immediacy. It's this idea of learning that all of us are here for a very short time, that all of us are passing. And so our job is not to stop up the way, but to get in a hurry, to get in a hurry to do what we're supposed to do, to get in a hurry to do what God has called us to do, to be passionate about our time on this earth, knowing that our time is passing. Don't get scared, but get passionate, get fired up, get in a hurry, cast aside every weight, cast aside every sin. So much about Herod parallels the spirit of the age, the idea of wanting to control by illegitimate power, the idea of purposes that are not in line with God's. The idea of coming to a place where we understand that our praise has to be a lived praise, a lived faith. Even as Peter came to the place where he had to go outside of his comfort zone, that's what the Advent is about. The five things I want to share very quickly, and then I'm down. As we look at the Advent, 
Here are some examples from the wise men that I want all of us to take home with us. Particularly as it refers to dealing with people that are different from you and dealing with people whom God is working through for the betterment of God's kingdom. Number one, be willing to go outside of your comfort zone. It's very uncomfortable for me when I was a teenager, 16 years old, to be associated with the man I was associated with because I was called an Uncle Tom. And if you're a black man, to be called an Uncle Tom is probably one of the worst things that you could ever be called. He was called an in-lover. And back in those days, an in-lover was probably one of the worst things you could be called. But I loved him, and he loved me. I saw in him more of Christ than I had seen in any other person other than my own father and mother. And so call me what you will. I've got to have Christ. And so I was made uncomfortable just to see how badly I wanted it, just like the wise men. Number two, stay consistent on the path and don't get sidetracked. History tells us it probably was a journey of about 400 miles that they had to go. It may have taken them up to 40 days. Sometimes they see the star, sometimes they wouldn't, but they never got sidetracked. Some of the things we see in the news are sidetracked. Some of the things you see in the newspapers, those of you who still read them, are sidetracked. Some of the things that go on in our society are sidetracked to get us off of the gospel. The gospel is the message. Not my race, not your race, not my political affiliation, not yours. It is the gospel. Number three, sometimes... In order to get where God wants you to go, you got to travel in the dark. Sometimes you got to go where you don't see your way clear. You don't know how it's going to end up. You got to travel in the dark. Number four, don't waste time with insincere, hypocritical people. If the wise men had spent their time messing with a hypocrite like Herod, they would have been killed, and so would Christ. If you waste your time dealing with hypocritical people who will say one thing in church and another thing outside of church, you are wasting your time. And then finally, as you go find Christ, bring your treasures with you. Be willing to pay whatever price it takes to find him. Because finding him, brothers and sisters, is worth everything you have. Every mile you walk, every pain you suffer, every inconvenience you endure, finding him is worth it all. God bless you.